A CNN panel of Democrat voters confirms my 2020 predictions. The party is moving left of Lenin. Forget moderation, forget focusing on the economy. In 2020, it's the sun monster, stupid. Then Liz Warren continues to botch identity politics. Masturbation becomes a sexual orientation and Christians around the world gorge themselves as Mardi Gras leads us into Lent. I'm Michael Knowles and this is The Michael Knowles Show. Laissez les bon temps brûler. Happy Mardi Gras. You are very, very lucky that none of the producers has any beads on him today because otherwise you'd be getting a show, let me tell you. Uh, quite a lot to get to. I have been vindicated in my 2020 predictions by no less an expert than CNN. We'll get to it in a second, but first, let's make a little money, honey, with Bolin Branch. Bolin Branch is the perfect comp, if you already got a good mattress, you want to make sure you got a good mattress too. Bowl and branch sheets are the perfect complement. And actually, back when I had a bad mattress, the one thing that made it nice was my bowl and branch sheets. Getting a great night's sleep is easier and more affordable than you think. You don't need a new expensive mattress. You don't need sleeping pills. You don't need all of those things. The way to get a good night's sleep on the cheap is Boland Branch. Everything Boland Branch makes from bedding to blankets is made from 100% pure organic cotton, which means they start out super soft and they get softer over time. How can you get very high-end luxury sheets for a fraction of the cost? Boland Branch, because Boland Branch cuts out the middleman. You'd be spending $1,000 in the store maybe. Here, they're only a couple hundred bucks. Everyone who tries Boland Branch sheets loves them. That's why they have thousands of five-star reviews. Forbes, Wall Street Journal, Fast Company are all talking about Bowl and Branch. Even three U.S. presidents sleep on Bowl and Branch sheets. Shipping is free. You can try them for 30 nights. If you don't love them, send them back for a refund, but you're not going to want to send them back. Get started right now. My listeners get $50 off your first set of sheets. This is a great deal. You should go right now to bowlandbranch.com, promo code Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L. You will not regret it. Bowlandbranch.com for $50 off your first set of sheets. B-O-L-L and branch.com, promo code Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, bowlandbranch.com, promo code Michael. Study after study shows that little old me is correct about 2020. The consensus view about 2020 that we have been hearing now for a while is the Democrats are, they're going to want a moderate. They're going to want a centrist. They're going to look, look, if they run Joe Biden, they'll be great. The consensus view, it's the economy, stupid. That's what they would always say. James Carville said this famously for Bill Clinton's runs. So, you know, Democrats, if they just focus on practical issues, working families, that's the way that they're going to win in 2020. And the thing is, the consensus view is always wrong. The Democrats are not going to go for that. Maybe that would work if they could do it, but the Democrats are simply not going to go for it. My view on this is that the Democrats are out for blood. They are triggered on an hourly basis by Donald Trump. They pay attention to those tweets with more attention than they give to their families or to their jobs. They are obsessed with it. They're obsessed with him. They want to punch back. They are basically as infuriated by him as, as right-wingers were by Barack Obama. And now they are learning a lesson that we have previously learned. The old view, the 90s view, is that it's the economy, stupid. It, this would basically be the neoliberal view. Stop arguing about the culture wars. Stop wor worrying, arguing about religion. Just focus on material things. That's what people really care about. At the end of the day, that's all they want to vote on is just if they're getting a little bit more money or a little less money, that's all that it is. 
It's not the 90s anymore. And there is actually a reaction in both political parties right now against what we would call neoliberalism, against this, this materialist point of view. So what does this look like on the right? It looks like the right is embracing its traditions. It looks like the right is wanting to make America great again. It's the right looking back first through the Tea Party, then through the Trump movement and saying, you know, there was something that we have lost even amidst this material prosperity that we want to regain, that we want to look back to. So, so we look back to our ancestors, we look forward to the future. What does this look like on the left? Well, it's the left embracing their own culture and it's the left embracing their own religion. And for the left, their religion is environmentalism. Their religion is global warming. Their religion is the Green New Deal. That's why this crazy plan that costs $93 trillion that would outlaw your home, your car, your airplane, your everything is basically become the central discussion during the 2020 Democrat primaries. That's why it's because it's a hearkening back beyond just mere economic matters all the way to religious matters, which on the left means environmentalism. The clearest sign of this, the clearest sign of the rejection of the 90s, the rejection of neoliberalism is that Hillary is out. I know there have been how many times that she said, I'm probably not going to run. I'm no, it doesn't look like I'm going to run. Some advisor leaks and says she's not going to run, but it's, it wasn't her saying it herself. Why? Because Hillary Clinton's been running for president since she was six years old. But now she has come out and said on my own hometown news network, News 12, because Hillary Clinton, who is my distant cousin, I'm sorry to say, also lives at the town over from where I grew up. Basically, man, there's really a lot going on in our little neighborhood, isn't there? Because in Chappaqua, you have Hillary Clinton living. Then in Bedford Hills, that's where I grew up. And then in Yorktown Heights, in the ritzier part, northern, you have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I think I'm the only Republican in my entire home county. Regardless, that's a diversion. That's a digression, rather. She comes out on News Channel 12, and she announces once and for all, Hillary Clinton is not running for president in 2020. Can you tell me now, standing here 100% that you've ruled it out? I'm not running, but I'm going to keep uh, working and speaking and standing up for what I believe. So even, even there, she says, I'm not running. It, it seems as though that's as ironclad as it could possibly be. However, she's a Clinton, so she can't ever give a straight answer on anything. So she says, I am not running. If you have to parse that in Clintonese, it she could run tomorrow. Currently, she's not running. She could run tomorrow, but it does appear that it's too late. There are too many competitors in the race already, too many people who will use up her donors. It's a little too late for her to jump in. She isn't doing the things that you need to do to run. And she's not running because the Democrats don't want her. And Hillary Clinton is pretty empty. She can be whatever she wants. She can be a hardline ideologue, then she can compromise on her ideology if she thinks the ends justify the means. She's a Clinton. Being a Clinton means never have to say what you really believe because you don't believe anything. Hillary Clinton, from her days at Wellesley, was clearly leaning left. She was, she loved Saul Alinsky, rules for radicals. She did have this essential leftist belief and she let it get quashed for decades and decades while she supported her husband, while she supported the new Democrats. Now the Democrat party has thrown her out for that. Even if down at her core, she's really a hardline leftist, they're throwing her out. They want somebody who is fully committed to the cause. There was a poll that came out yesterday, NBC Wall Street Journal poll. 
it said, oh, the thing that, Demo- that voters least want in 2020 is a candidate who's a socialist or who's over 75. Now, this was being aired as evidence that, no, no, the Democrats are going to moderate. No, 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 Michael, what are you talking about? The Democrats are going to nominate a centrist and they're going to beat Trump. Those headlines were all wrong because what the headlines showed is that in a general election, being a socialist and being over 75 was not preferable. But that's not the case for the Democrats. And as we see time and time again, what the Democrats want is a far left winger. Someone who is going to react to Trump as the polar opposite. He's going to be a, a hardline socialist. That, that is a, a bad incentive for Democrats because if the Democrats only have incentives to nominate some far left winger in their primary, they're going to have a very hard time in the general election. That's really what that NBC Wall Street Journal poll shows. And don't just take my word for it. Allison Camerata on CNN held a focus group uh, yesterday where she asked, what do people want in their candidate? Do they want a Joe Biden who pretends to be regular man of the people, rust belt sort of guy? Or do they want some crazy Bernie Sanders Alexandria, occasional cortex, uh, Elizabeth Warren, whatever. Which way are they going to go? The CNN panel was pretty clear. The, the winning formula would be for a Democrat to be pragmatic and more centrist. Show of hands. Two of you feel that way. How many of you feel that the time is right for a progressive and that's what would win? Carol? We're ready for progressive candidates. They've won all over the country. Um, and I think we need bold, strong leadership. And you find that in the progressives. I think that we had the standard bearer for the the kind of pragmatic uh, centrist candidate in Hillary Clinton in 2016. And Donald Trump is now the president. He is not your average political uh, uh, candidate. So we we really need to try to think outside the box because, you know, it seems like the dude is made of rubber. Like anything you throw at him just bounces off. I mean, there's nothing that sticks. Absolutely. There's a lot of insight in that panel. There's a ton of insight. One, that he's the Teflon Don. That they keep, what what are they throwing at him? They're throwing the Russia accusations. They're throwing campaign finance accusations. They're throwing corruption accusations. They're throwing all these things at him. They're saying he's too conservative. Then they're saying he doesn't have any political beliefs. He's nothing. Then they're throwing all these things at him and it just bounces off of him. And so, what these progressives are saying is that there is no way that nominating an empty vessel is going to beat that. The way that you're going to beat the Teflon Don is you got to be so direct. You got to channel all of your forces, all of your ideology, all of your identity politics. That's the only way that they're going to take him down. What's the practical consequence of this? We'll get to it in a second. But first, got to make a little more money. With Mint Mobile, there are things in life that are not right. They're just not right carpet in showers, eating dip with your fingers, chunky style milk. None of those things are right. You know what else isn't right? Paying too much for your phone bill. That is not right. Thanks to Mint Mobile, you do not have to overpay for your wireless anymore. With Mint Mobile, you can cut your wireless bill down to just 15 bucks a month. They've reimagined wireless, making it easy and online only, which means that they can pass the savings on directly to you. You can save over $1,000 a year with Mint Mobile without sacrificing quality service. It sounds too good to be true. It is not too good to be true. It's just that you are getting gouged by big, big phone, by the big cellular companies. They're gouging you like crazy. Stop pouring that money down the drain. 
you can cut your wireless bill down to 15 bucks a month. That's it. One five. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan. You can choose plans between 3, 8, and 12 gigabytes of 4G LTE data. What it is, the way the phone companies gouge you is they charge you for unlimited data that you're not using that you will never use. Stop getting ripped off. If you're not 100% satisfied, there's a seven-day money-back guarantee. You can get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. Get the plan shipped to your door for free. Go to mintmobile.com slash Knowles. K-N-O-W-L-E-S. Mintmobile.com slash Knowles. K-N-O-W-L-E-S. Cut your wireless bill down to 15 bucks a month. Get free shipping on your Mint Mobile plan. Mintmobile.com slash Knowles. Democrats want a progressive. They want a hardcore progressive in 2020. What is the practical consequence of that? Mr. Vice President, former Vice President Joe Biden, unfortunately, you ran in 1988, you ran in 2008, you never got the job. It looks like you're probably not going to get it again. How many of you would like to see Joe Biden get in? Show of hands. <clears throat> What's happening, Russell? <laughs> His time is done. I'll be honest. I used to think like, you know, because obviously he was riding like kind of the Obama wave and I thought he was the, I thought he was the person that would unite the party. But to be honest, you know, Senator Biden really comes from the kind of the good old boy politics right. of the past. I don't think Joe Biden represents that new thing that we need. Mm-hmm. We He's just behind. we need a new economy. We need a new yeah. politics and Absolutely. we need someone different. New, new, new. We don't need guys who compromise. We don't need guys who are old. There are two ways to read that line by the first gentleman who said Joe Biden represents the good old boy politics of the past. The one way to read it is identity politics. He's an old white guy. He looks like the good old boys, doesn't he? And so I I think there's a little bit of that going on. Obviously, the Democrat Party is quite concerned with identity politics. But I think actually, to to give this guy the charitable read of what he's saying, and and I think a legitimate one, when he's talking about the good old boy politics, I think what he's talking about is compromise. I think what he's talking about is speaking to the other side. It's not treating the other side like they're a bunch of Nazis. Because Joe Biden was able to do this. Joe Biden was as tough a partisan as anybody there is. And don't don't let anyone tell you otherwise. However, during the period of time that he was very prominent in the Senate, was basically talking from the 70s all the way up until he was vice president, you're looking at a guy who at least had the impression that he could work with the other side. You're looking at a guy who was working in a political era that rewarded, to some degree, compromise, that rewarded being moderate, that rewarded being able to work with other people. That is not our time in politics. Our time in politics actually punishes you if you are seen to be able to talk to the other side or work with the other side, especially on the left, because the left has decided that the right-wingers are Nazis. I mean, they call us Nazis all the time. They call us fascist, Nazi, criminal, terror, all these sort of things. And so if you work with those people, you're you're part of the problem. You're not part of the solution. And Joe Biden has cultivated that image for his entire career. I think both of those things are really working against him. So what do they care about? You've got a little taste of identity politics. You've got a little bit of, you want a little more radicalism. You want a little more leftism. But how does that manifest? Because being far left can mean anything. It can mean you want 90% tax rates. It can mean you want to... uh, you know, have the workers take over the means of production. It, it, it can have an economic focus or it can have this environmental focus. It can have a sexual focus. It can be feminist leftism or it can have an environmental focus. I keep coming back to that because that is, I think, at the base of 
Democrats' 2020 plans. That, I think, is at the base of what the left is looking at. And uh, the, the panel can explain the policies they're looking toward. The, the d- panel can explain the political issues that they're looking toward. And then I'll explain why they've been duped into thinking that's the primary policy. What will you be voting on in 2020 if the, if the election were held today? Mary, what's your big issue that you feel you would vote on? You know, my big issue truly is about climate change. I think because it, it touches everyone and it touches jobs and it touches our future. And we cannot have a conversation about politics without considering what we are doing to the planet. And I mean, you, you see people freaking out over the wall and these migrants coming up from, uh, from Central and South America. I mean, that's going to be like nothing compared to the migration we will see as climate change really starts to, uh, to affect the sea level rise. I mean, the ice is melting fast. <laughs> the ice is melting fast. Just as a side note, that isn't true. Actually, ice in the Antarctic, ice in the uh, North Pole as well is it, there is more ice than less ice. The ice. It depends on the time of the year, obviously, but overall, the amount of ice that we're seeing there is greater than it was uh, when Al Gore told us the world was ending. That's just a side. I'm, that's just a slight factual point, but it actually doesn't really matter what the facts are. What matters for 2020 is what the Democrats think that the facts are, and what you hear is a universalizing, totalizing religious system. That is why. It's the Andrew Breitbart lesson applied to the left. Andrew Breitbart says politics is downstream of culture. We know from Russell Kirk and from many other people, culture is downstream of religion. It's downstream of the cult. It's what we worship. What we worship defines the culture. It's also been said many times that all political problems ultimately are theological problems. And the left is waking up to this. And the the previous totalizing religion for the left was communism. During the 20th century, it was varying degrees of communism. That was the religion. You hear Bernie Sanders still talk in this way. He vacationed in the Soviet Union. He had a fascination with communism. He would always defend communist dictators. That was his religion. It has shifted now. After the fall of the Soviet Union, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, There was no more communism to idolize. It had so obviously failed. And so they had to take that totalizing religion for the left and transform it. They've transformed it into environmentalism. Every political issue for the left can boil down to that first principle. Even illegal immigration. They say, oh, you think illegal immigration is bad now? Just wait until the sun monster melts all the ice caps. Then it'll be really bad. Oh, you think that the energy industry is difficult now. You think gas prices are high now. Just wait until global warming destroys our economy, makes it such that we can't use fossil fuels. Once we deplete all our fossil fuels, look at what prices. Just wait until global warming, global warming, global warming, because it gives people a sense of purpose. It gives them a substitute for sin. It gives them a substitute for redemption. It gives them a substitute for penance. It gives them a substitute for salvation, for saving the world. Gives them a substitute for charity. It's going to affect everybody on earth. That is what it's all boiling down to. That's why the Green New Deal is an all-encompassing economic plan, political plan, social plan. That's why it's gaining traction, because it's a lunatic plan. We've all read the draft legislation. I think I read it on the show. So how can people get behind it? 
because it touches everything. It totally changes everything. We have a beautiful new world ahead of us, a utopia ahead of us, all based on this foundational myth, which is global warming. This is the global struggle. This is the war. You heard Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez say, we need to gear up for climate change and mobilize for climate change the way we mobilized for World War II. And what's so ironic about that is she then, in the same breath, she says, and we should stop mobilizing for wars. So we need to treat global warming like it's a war, but we shouldn't fight any wars. We shouldn't fight any actual wars. It's a total inversion. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said this on Twitter yesterday. She, She was trying to defend Ilan Omar. Ilan Omar doesn't like the Jews, and she hates the Jewish state, and Ben has talked about it on his show. She's, she is anti-Semitic. I don't throw that word around lightly. I try not to use those sort of words. But she is exhibiting that. And so the left is trying to defend her. AOC is trying to defend her specifically. And so she's, she tweets out, quote, I remember a time when it was unacceptable to question the Iraq war. All of Congress was wrong, including both the GOP and Democrat party and led my generation into a disastrous and long war that virtually all would come to regret except for the one member who stood up, Barbara Lee. Okay. Now she then responded to this and she said, oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I meant Afghanistan war. My apologies. So she said, because there were, we debated the Iraq war. I remember the debates over the Iraq war. But Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez doesn't because she's got the memory and historical knowledge of a fruit fly. So she said, oh, no, I'm sorry. I mean a completely different war. This would be a gaffe that would really uh, matter if a Republican said it. With her, they ignore it. And then she doubles down. She says, quote, but honestly, we shouldn't have been in either war. And we should end the uh, authorization of military force while we're at it. So this, you know, she's that person who can't apologize. She's that person who gets something wrong and then she sort of apologizes because she has to. And then she tries to tell you why she was actually right in the first place. She's doing that thing, which is just evidence of someone without any humility. But look at the radicalism of that statement. Because if she came out and said, I'm against the Iraq war, okay, a lot of people are against the Iraq war. Donald Trump in many ways is against the Iraq war. So, okay, that's fine. They're plenty of criticisms to hurl at the Iraq war. But she's criticizing any military response after 9-11. She's criticizing the Afghanistan war. She's criticizing the authorization for the use of military force after 9-11, after Islamic terrorists who were harbored by nation states took down our center of commerce, the World Trade Center, killed 3,000 American civilians, attacked our Pentagon, and tried to attack either the White House or the Capitol. And because of the heroism of people on Flight 93, were taken down before they could succeed. We are talking about the most significant terrorist attack on our nation ever. And she says, no, we shouldn't have responded. No, no, we shouldn't respond. There is nothing noble about this. There is nothing right about this. This is moral idiocy. This is like people who read the line, turn the other cheek, and twist that and pervert that line into a sick pacifism that would let the cruel rape the earth. Rather than reading it as it is, which is a spiritual tactic and strategy for humility to defeat the Prince of Pride. This is a perverted pacifism, but I... I bring it up 
in this case, not just to criticize what she said on its merits, though I will do that, but to show the perversity of the Green New Deal. She says we need to mobilize for war to attack plastic litter and air pollution, but we shouldn't mobilize for war when people declare war on us and kill 3,000 of our civilians. Look at the backwardsness of that. Look at the total inversion of that. This is, by the way, why the Green New Deal, I think, is just fatally flawed as a matter of public policy. Cocaine Mitch seems to think the same thing, which is why he won't, he really wants to bring it up for a vote. He says, we need to get everyone on the record here. Uh, You know, there is a sense that we have liberty. Liberty is good to protect. We like protecting our liberty, our traditional liberties, as they're embodied in institutions and our traditional rights as Americans. We want to protect those liberties. However, the protection of life has to come first. You don't have liberties without life. Protection, when they come into conflict, you do for a spell, have to prioritize protection. And what these Democrats are doing is they're totally flipping it. They're saying that they're threatening both security and liberty. They're threatening our liberty through the Green New Deal. They're saying we're going to take away all your money, your house, your car, your rights, your political representation. We're going to basically undo the American Republican system and we're going to outsource all political decisions to a little committee of Democrats. But they're also threatening our security because at the same time they're saying we're going to mobilize for the the sun monster. We're not going to fight any wars. It's a big loser, I think, in 2020, but uh, they've bought into this because of their religious fervor. We'll see, by the way, uh, how Liz Warren is imperiling her 2020 hopes. We'll also talk about auto-sexuality. Screwing yourself has never been so politically correct. (laughs) And then we'll get to Lent if we have time for Mardi Gras. But first, go to dailywire.com. You know what you get. You get everything. 10 bucks a month, $100 for an annual membership. You get everything. You get to ask questions in the mailbag. That's coming up on Thursday. Um, We're not going to have a show tomorrow because I'm going to be guest hosting uh, the Fox program Outnumbered. So tune in to that. That's at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Tell your friends. That'll be a lot of fun. It'll be me and four women. What could be better? But we are going to have a show on Thursday. So get your mailbag questions and we're going to have a show on Friday. Dailywire.com. You got the Leftist Tears Tumblr. It is... uh, you're not going to see the ice caps melt. That's probably unlikely, but you will see the snowflakes melt and you will be able to fill your tumblers with the delicious liquid. So go to dailywire.com. We'll be right back with a lot more. Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren is still failing to answer the only question that matters to her campaign, her fraud, her lying about her heritage, her original lie that has permitted her entire career. And she keeps getting this answer wrong. So now she's doing an interview on CNN, friendly outlet with David Axelrod, a Democrat operative, obviously a friendly person. And he says, how are you going to answer this? And she still hasn't come up with an answer. Obviously, that's a very small part of, of, your, of your lineage, you know, 132nd or something. So why, why did you do it? So, you know, like I said, I grew up in Oklahoma. I learned about my family the same way most people learn about their families, you know, from my mom and my dad and my aunts and my uncles. 
she's answering these questions like she's a perp on To Catch a Predator. She's answering, well, so why don't you take a seat right over there? Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Um, so uh, what were you doing here today, huh? What were you, it's like David Axelrod's become Chris Hansen. So what uh, did you plan to do here? Oh, nothing, nothing. I was just, uh, I was just learning about my family, like, mo- like most, most people do, uh, about, you know, from their, from their mother and father. And, uh, uh, and uh, you know, but she's pl- trying to play it down. She's trying to, oh, no, it's nothing. No, no, it's, it, it, it's not nothing. It's something. This is the biggest threat to your political career. You've got to deal with it like an adult. You got you can't pretend it's not real. You got to deal with it head on. She should attack it head on. She keeps playing defense, but but the issue is all of the fraud. The, this is a big deal. She claimed to the Texas Bar Association that she was Native American. She claimed to Harvard University she was Native American. This helps you get jobs. This helps you in hiring. Harvard bragged about it. This gives you a tremendous professional advantage. She, she has to come out. She, I, I'm going to give, if she watches the show, Senator Warren, Senatrix Warren, uh, Chief Liawatha, I will give you the answer for your campaign to at least have a shot at working through this. But what does she do? She keeps denying, deny, 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 deny. She said never helped her in her whole professional career. Based on what I learned growing up and the fact that I love my family, decades ago, I sometimes identified as Native American. It's, it's, there, it never had anything to do with any job that I ever got. That's been fully documented. So the universities kind of fudged and used you for their own purposes. It never had, it never had anything to do with my getting a job. Mm -hmm. It, it, um, even so, um, I shouldn't have done it. I'm not a person of color. Uh, I am not a citizen of a tribe, but um, what I try to do is be a good friend to Native Americans. That's her defense. That's her defense. I love my family and I try to be a good friend. And then she says it didn't help her get a job. It did help her get a job. It did. Of course it did. That's why she did it. If she wants to win, if she wants to get past this, she has to just take a little tiny dose of humility. Just try to get rid of that. Just a little, in a, in a chink of the armor of pride, just knock away a little bit. She has to stop thinking in such a self-centered way, but she can't do it. She needs to stop defending the cheating to get a job. She has to stop denying that the cheating got her a job. She needs to speak in cultural terms. She's not learning the lesson that younger Democrats have learned. Which she needs to go out there and say, I thought I was more Native American than I am. When I was a kid, because of what my family told me, I thought I was more Native American than I am. And I identified myself as more Native American than I am because I learned about the historical struggles that Native Americans went through. And I really, this resonated with me. And I felt that it was a part of my family. And I didn't want to abandon that part of my family. And I didn't want it to just disappear. I didn't want it to be watered down. She can even use the intersectionality language. She can say, I didn't want it to to be, uh, have all of the whiteness overshadow this real ancestor that I thought that I had that I thought I had in my relatively recent history, I I didn't want it to disappear. And I know now that that was wrong. I know that it was the wrong view of racial politics, but it's what I did. I did it for the best of intentions. I did it because of a real natural sense of identity with 
an ancestor and a people that have been really hurt. And it was wrong. And it was the sort of thing that immature people do. And I'm sorry that I did it, but I've matured. I've stopped doing it. I obviously, I did it for the best of intentions, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And, and, and I, I am where I am and that's who I am. And that's, and I'm sorry, if it helped me get a job, I'm sorry for that. I I just didn't think through it. It was wrong to do. And I did it because of a real sense of heritage that maybe was just in my head. Maybe it was just in the family folklore. And I'm sorry for that. If she came out and said that, she might be able to squeak past this because it would be a total apology. It would be not a denial. It would be not a, it's not a big deal. It would be not a, I love my family and I'm a good friend. It would be none of that. It would actually be getting to the heart of it because there is, I, I, I get it. Look, I've done genealogical research too. People have a sense of belonging, a, a sense of their place in politics and history because of their family, because of their heritage, because of their family traditions. This is a, an area where I actually see the logic of identity politics, or I at least see the premise of it. I don't, I don't see the logic because the logic just falls apart as the left implements identity politics. But I, to- I totally get it. My family came over on the Mayflower. Four members of my family came over on the Mayflower. One of them died from wounds incurred at Bunker Hill during the Revolutionary War. Another one went on to serve with George Washington throughout the entire Valley Forge, throughout the Revolutionary War. I had another family member die at the Second Battle of Bull Run in the Civil War. I've had ancestors in most American wars. That gives me a sense of America and a sense of pride in America and a sense of ownership and belonging and a a responsibility and an accountability to our tradition. And I completely understand if your ancestors were slaves, that you would have a very different view of America. I totally get that. And you might have a little resentment toward America. Totally get that too. Now, The answer, the way to work out of this is that if you allow that resentment to just fester with pride, with entitlement, with a chip on your shoulder, with a grudge, with hatred, then it becomes the identity politics that the left has today. But if you look at that and you see history for what it is, and then you have some humility and some grace and some forgiveness and some gratitude for all the wonderful things that this country has done, and you have some pride in helping, even if your ancestors were brought here and changed, that they helped to build this country that is so wonderful that you today can be a senator, or you can run for this, or you can have a job, or you can have all the freedoms and all of the prosperity in the world. That's, that's a way to work out of that. I, I, heritage does matter. It totally does. That's why people are rightly angry at Liz Warren. That's why Liz Warren cynically pretended to be a Native American. And if she can speak in those terms, I I think it would resonate with her voters. I think it would resonate with Republicans. I think it would allow her to work out of this a little bit. But it would require a little dose of humility, a little bit of introspection, and a little bit of grace for the country. And, And the Democrat Party in 2019 has none of that. None of that. This is... The, the wonderful aspect of 2019, 2020 for Democrats, is it shows the logical conclusions of their ideas. We are now talking 
because the Democrats have become radicalized, because they don't want a moderate, they don't want a centrist, they, they want a, a far leftist, they are showing the logical conclusions of their ideas. The logical conclusion of identity politics, the whitest woman on earth is an Indian. The logical conclusion of abortion, we should kill babies after they've been born. The logical conclusion of global warming, we should overthrow the republic, we should tax everyone at 80%, we should suspend all of our political liberties. If, if truly the entire world is going to end in 12 years because of the sun monster, as AOC says, of course, yeah, of course we should do everything we can, including suspending political liberties, including totally revolutionizing, overthrowing the republic, everything we possibly can to stop that. Now, of course it isn't true. The world isn't going to end in 12 years. I'll bet Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez every penny that I have to my name that the world will not end in 12 years as she says it does. AOC, Congresswoman, if you're watching, I know you watch the show, I am willing to bet every single penny I have to my name that the world will not end in 12 years if you're willing to take the other side of that bet. Now, this is a great bet because if she's right, by the way, you know, I won't exactly have to pay out. But every penny to my name, if you, if you will take it. But of course, they don't really believe that. I'm going to be talking about this, by the way. I'm going to be giving a speech in Cincinnati on Thursday about how the global warming alarmists don't really believe what they say that they believe. But that'll be a topic for another day. That is, this is, and the logical conclusion, by the way, this is my favorite story. We have to get to it before the end today. The logical conclusion of the sexual revolution, which is so much of what the left talks about, gender, sexuality, sexual preference, the logical conclusion of the sexual revolution is something called autosexuality. Autosexuality. This is, there was a big headline in the newspapers yesterday and today. It gives new meaning to the phrase, go screw yourself. The piece in Metro yesterday said, quote, what it's like being autosexual when you find yourself attracted to yourself. Auto, this is the logical conclusion of the sexual revolution is screwing yourself. That's it. This, the piece opens up. It says, quote, sexuality is fluid. As with lots of things, it can evolve into boomerang over time. Though so often thought about in binary terms, just as with gender, there are many different sexualities people identify as. Autosexuality is one such identification that is seldom talked about. It's the idea of being sexually attracted to yourself and can also come with being autoromantic, experiencing the relationship with yourself as romantic. The piece goes on. It can mean being turned on by your own look and nudity, getting butterflies when you think about yourself, being excited to spend time alone, and cover your ears, parents who are watching with children, and, and masturbating to the idea of yourself. It's all the feelings we get for a potential new suitor, but for ourselves. Gia Vitale is autosexual and autoromantic. She is also engaged to get married to herself after proposing in March 2017. After becoming aware of her sexuality at the age of seven, she didn't explore her feelings until she was in college. <laughs> That's because she's uh, not a boy. Boys, I don't want to get too graphic here. Actually, uh, Woody Allen d defended this. He explained this point uh, very clearly in Annie Hall. Hey, don't knock masturbation. It's sex with someone I love. <laughs> That's, that's true, because Gia Vitale, it, it took her longer to come to Woody Allen's conclusion. This 
is the logical consequence of the left's sexual revolution. The sexual revolution is all around us. And by the way, I'm, you know, I'm speaking not as this totally removed hermit from this culture or, you know, during my atheistic, more decadent college days, my single days, I aspired to be a brigadier general in the sexual revolution. It doesn't just affect the left. This affects the left, the center, and the right. And, and what they try to do is they try to make the right out as these prudish people who have no idea what they're talking about. Oh, they just don't know. They just can't imagine sexuality. They just, they're, they're so sheltered. No, not at all. Not at all. First of all, if you're in the modern culture, you are in the sexual revolution. And unless you really stick firmly to conservative principles or to really firmly to certain religious principles, this is how you behave. The hookup culture is all around us. The swipe right or swipe left culture is all around us. But ultimately, having seen many vantages of this, it is ultimately just about selfishness. That's all the sexual revolution ever meant. And we're, we're seeing it at the very end with autosexuality, but it's all it meant. This is why. Now, the left looks on traditional sexual morality, and they just, they don't get it. Say, why on earth would anyone ever care what sort of things you do in the bedroom? Why on earth would anyone care what you do with yourself, as Woody Allen and the autosexuals seem to do? Why would anyone care? This shows why traditional morality holds opprobrium for inventive sexuality or kinkiness or whatever. Because all of those things, all, all of them to varying degrees, turn the focus of sexuality onto the self. And we're in a, I'm, we're in a time where this is just the fact that is just the fact of our culture, is that sexuality has been turned totally to the self. We have sex robots that are we're hearing reported on every single day. Sex robot brothels, virtual reality porn. And in, in cultures where these have been really introduced to a larger degree, I'm thinking mostly of Japan, birth rates drop. Sex with women drops. There was one study that showed that young Japanese men would prefer autosexuality than to have sex with a woman. What this does too, the logical consequence of this, is it makes sex unsexy. That's all it means. It turns out that all of human history, from the dawn of time until, I don't know, 1962, may have been a little bit wiser than we are today. And look, between the campus kangaroo courts, between this clinical treatment of sex, where you basically need to get a contract looked over by a notary public before you can kiss a girl, what it, what it has done is the impossible. The left has succeeded at the impossible. They've made sex boring. This is, I guess this is a good topic to end on now on Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday. Again, speaking of our sexual revolution, you are so, so lucky that nobody in this room has beads right now. <laughs> We'd be getting uh, quite a, quite the sexual revolution show. This is Mardi Gras. This is Fat Tuesday. This is when Christians gorge themselves and do decadent things. <laughs> and then it leads into the penitential period of Lent. It begins on Ash Wednesday and it ends on Easter. This is a, a time of uh, penitence. This is a time of abstention from certain things. This is a time of fasting. Uh, people look on Christians as weird when they do this, when they fast for a couple of days. It's because we're in a culture that is all about instant gratification. It's all about gratifying the flesh. But ultimately, that becomes boring. 
you know, the idea, I think it was Archbishop Fulton Sheen said that the traditional Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or traditional Christian idea of fasting is first you have the fast, then you have the feast. And that the modern idea has become first you have the feast, then you have the hangover. <laughs> and that's our culture. First you have the feast and then you have the hangover. People get sexhausted. People gorge themselves. People are just, when you give in to the appetites of the flesh all the time, they lose their sensation. They stop being nice. They lead you ultimately to boredom, to a sort of depression. To you need constantly more and more. Eventually there's not more and more to stimulate you. Maybe the old idea, maybe the tradition, was a little wiser. So now we have a feast, then we're going to have a fast for 40 days, and then we're going to have another feast. And uh, I, I look forward to all of it. I look forward to seeing all of you. Well, I'll see you tomorrow on Fox if you tune in at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. noon on Outnumbered. It'll be me and a bunch of lovely ladies. And then I'll see you on Thursday, both for the show and for my speech in Cincinnati. In the meantime, I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. The Michael Knowles Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Danny D'Amico. Audio is mixed by Dylan Case. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Production assistant, Nick Sheehan. The Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. Today on the Ben Shapiro Show, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez continues to jump on every rake in sight Google uncovers some inconvenient data about the wage gap and British women panic about global warming. That's today on The Ben Shapiro Show.